John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the father has sent me, I also sent you. And when you had said when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In chapter 20, Jesus shows up. And changes the lives of his disciples. One woman's sorrow becomes joy. And the disciples fear becomes peace. And later in the chapter, when we come to the story of Thomas, one disciple's uncertainty is going to become certainty. And in John's gospel, and in particular chapter 20, we discover something that the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus declares and points to the fact that Jesus is alive and living. And that when Jesus shows up, fearful people can become faith-filled people. And when Jesus shows up, disappointed people can be filled with joy. And when Jesus shows up, directionless people can be given specific instructions. And when Jesus shows up, spirit-filled believers can become faith-filled witnesses. And clearly, when Jesus shows up, sinful people can become forgiven people. Look again in verse 19. It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Twice in the chapter, we're told this is the first day of the week in the Hebrew culture and in the Jewish way of reckoning time, they didn't say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They called the first day Sunday. They called the second day the second day, the third day, on and on. And the final day, the sixth day, was called the Sabbath. So John brings attention to the time and he brings attention to the terror. Look again. The doors are shut. Now, this is interesting on so many different levels. The word shut is kaleo. And for those of you who have any understanding of the Greek language, this is the perfect passive participle. And that might say, well, that's, that's all Greek to me. But the perfect passive participle indicates that that means that the door is locked. It's not just simply shut. It's locked tight. And what it does is it gives us a picture, if you will, of what's going on. Remember, it's the first day. And in that first day, several things have already happened. The day's events are playing over and over in the apostles' minds. Clearly, the last 48 hours have been dramatic. Jesus has been in the upper room, maybe even the upper room where they are. Jesus has spoken to them. Jesus has talked about a sacrifice and a covenant. Jesus went through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane 
Judas has betrayed him. Jesus has been arrested and convicted. He has been tortured and crucified. And strange reports have begun to circulate that the guards had scattered. The seal has been broken. Peter and John have told them that the body isn't there. The women have shared the fact that angels have said that he's risen from the dead and that they themselves have seen him. And clearly the disciples might have allies in the persons of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the religious leaders. But they are in this room and they are filled with fear. It says the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. The religious leaders have killed Jesus. And what's going to stop the religious leaders from killing his followers? And there might even be faint words remembered in the not too distant past. Jesus himself said, they've hated me. What makes you think that they're not going to hate you? They persecuted me. What makes you think that they're not going to persecute you? And, And their lives are filled with dread. Someone once described ungodly fear this way. Ungodly fear is the fear that God will allow me to be hurt. And some of you have experienced that kind of fear. God, are you going to allow my husband to leave, my wife to leave? Are you going to allow my children to get well? Are you going to allow me to lose my job? Are you going to allow certain grievous things to happen to me? And all of a sudden you get your heart gets filled with fear. Someone once described godly fear. As the possibility. That I might do something to grieve God. To hurt God, to offend God, to wound the heart of God. And clearly some fears are founded and they are healthy. There's a healthy fear of God. There's a healthy fear of fire. And if you've ever been around electricity, you should have a healthy fear of it. If you take it for granted and you abuse it, it can abuse you. God placed within us a mechanism for preservation. There is a good reason why when you come to a busy intersection, you look both ways. But there is also an unhealthy fear. And the unhealthy fear is that kind of fear that traps you. It traps you and it refuses to allow you to live. Time. And terror are about to give way to transformation. Look what it says. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. And look what it says. And stood in the midst. Este, ice, toe. Mazon, I know it's, it sounds like it's all Greek, but again, it, it's an amazing passage with an amazing meaning. I want you to get the picture. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up behind closed doors. Jesus shows up in the midst. Jesus shows up. And understand that the locked door was incapable of keeping Jesus from showing up. And it becomes a type and a picture, an important type and a picture of the of a different kind of door. It's the kind of door that each and every person brings with them whenever they hear a message. But it's not a door made of steel and it's not a door made of wood. It's a door sometimes made of apathy and sometimes made of indifference. It's a door sometimes of doubt and sometimes it's a door full on unbelief. Some people come to church and they they come through the entry door and then they come in the sanctuary door. I just 
those of you know who come here often, you often hear me say there are two kinds of people in the world. How, and what kind of people are those? Italian people and people who wish they were. No, but that's not the two kinds that we're talking about now. There are the kind of people who come to church and they expect Jesus to show up. But there are people who don't expect Jesus to show up. They expect the doubt and they expect the fear and they expect the pain and they expect the disappointment to remain the same. And Jesus has conquered the world and Jesus has conquered the devil and Jesus has conquered hell and Jesus has conquered the flesh and Jesus has conquered death. Do you think Jesus is going to let a little thing like a locked door keep him out? And some of you might think that if you believe hard enough and long enough, if you are able to make yourself forget that Jesus is alive, that maybe you can continue to live in the darkness and live in the despair and live in the disappointment. But that's not what happens. Jesus shows up. And typically it's in the midst of trial and the presence of sorrow and the presence of terror. And I've noticed something because almost invariably everyone is going to experience some kind of sorrow and they're going to experience some kind of terror and they're going to experience some kind of disappointment. And one of two things is going to happen. Some people will grow wings and other people will buy crutches. Some of you are going to try to figure out a way where you can rise above the disappointment and the pain and the sorrow. And for reasons that I don't always understand, some of us choose to remain. You know what? I've discovered something. Just like there are two kinds of people, those who expect Jesus to show up and those that doubt that Jesus will show up. There are also people who invite Jesus to show up. And then there are people who leave the request unsaid. But if you haven't done it so far, even though you might have been singing and you you heard the words and you even whispered the words and maybe some of you even shouted the words, maybe now would be a good time for you to actually do that. Even while I'm speaking, you pray, Lord, show up, Jesus, show up. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. For me, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for a cat. That's exactly right. For many people, it's like a criminal who's on a search for a cop. There are people who are looking for certain things. But they have no intention of ever finding it. Don't be deceived. The disciples, perhaps with the exception of John, who wrote this gospel, remember the disciples are up in the upper room. And I'm going to ask you yet another hard question. Are they expecting Jesus to show up? The answer is no. The door is locked and it's barred. The disciples aren't expecting Jesus to show up. Ernest Renan, who who was a famous Atheist slash agnostic, he drifted back and forth, made famous a popular agnostic prayer. He prayed, oh, God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have a soul. That's the agnostic's prayer. Are you there? And am I in trouble? What do you suppose these disciples are praying? 
during the 40 day period after Jesus rose from the dead. There's no record, by the way, of Jesus ever having met with the disciples from Friday evening to Saturday evening. On Shabbat, I find that interesting. Jesus shows up on the first day, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus shows up again the following Sunday. As a matter of fact, on the 40th day after his resurrection, you remember he will ascend into heaven and he will be seated at the right hand of the father. And it will take place on a Sunday. It's a new day. And Jesus speaks the ordinary Middle Eastern greeting. He says, Shalom, Alekom. This ordinary phrase is going to become an extraordinary promise when it's spoken by a resurrected Savior. You know, you probably met people today and you said, hello. Or if you're a little bit more cool, dude, what, what's up? We have idiomatic expressions that we use among one another. But when Jesus says shalom, alakom, the phrase means way more than peace be with you. When one Jew says to another Jew, shalom, it means may you be saved from trouble. But it means even more than that. It means may God give you every good thing. Isn't that interesting? May God be with you and may you have the peace of God and may you experience every good thing in John's gospel earlier in John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus had said, Shalom, peace, I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, but they are afraid. In John chapter 16, verse 35, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that in me. You might have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 13, Paul wrote, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Ephesians two fourteen, it says, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And in Romans chapter five, verse one, Paul writes and he says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus doesn't just simply impart peace, but that he is the source of peace. He's the reservoir of peace. He is the mechanism of peace. The reality. In Jesus. You can have peace. Apart from Jesus. There is the disturbing reality. That sin and guilt continue to plague you and trouble you. The Lord Jesus promises peace with God and the peace of God. And part of the, the point becomes if you don't have peace with God and you've never experienced the circumstances of what it means to have a right relationship with God and go in the direction that God has appointed for you. Why not? He's alive. You know, when Jesus shows up in the room, when I was looking at this passage, I, I thought to myself, there's a lot of things that Jesus could have said. Remember, the disciples have fled and they've run away and they're hiding out in the upper room. And can you imagine if you were Jesus and you show up and then what is going to be the first words out of your mouth? Dude, where were you? What were you thinking? Over and over again, when I was walking with you, I reminded you, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried and convicted. I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to come back to life. What part of the message didn't you get? And the right response would be, Lord, we pretty much missed all of it. Why did you run away? You know, it's interesting to me, he doesn't 
begin the conversation with reproof or correction or reprimand. He doesn't begin the conversation with, hey, let's talk about your failure and let's talk about your weakness. Don't you find that remarkable? Because isn't that often the way we begin conversations with each other? You know you're in trouble when anyone comes up to you and says, we need to talk. Because almost certainly it's going to be a conversation that you don't want to have. But Jesus shows up and he says, Shalom Aleichem. I'm going to give you peace. And a little bit later, Jesus is going to invite the terrified disciples to deliver a message of peace to a hostile world. That's part and parcel of who you are. You know, this last weekend, the uh, Nobel Peace Committee decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize. But it's come to my attention that the world's view of peace is very different from the Bible's view of peace. On Friday, when after I had gone over and I poured over this message and I began to write my outline and I began to think about the passage, I drove to the church in order to do my afternoon radio program. And when I'm not on the radio, sometimes I listen to the radio and there was a guy on the radio and he says, you know what I think? You know what my definition of peace is? My definition of peace is the ability to protect my family and the ability to overcome and defeat my enemies. And I thought to myself, I'm a family man and I understand what it means to want peace for your family. And I also am a person who is living in a world that is wicked and hostile. And I understand what it means to just want to have a little peace. But when the Bible talks about peace, the definition of peace isn't just simply the absence of conflict. The definition of peace is a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus becomes the mechanism of peace. When Jesus shows up, there's the possibility of peace. And when Jesus shows up, he brings joy. Look at verse 20. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The picture is Jesus going to each and every person in the room. It's more than just going, dudes, look at my wrists and look at my side. The implication is that imagine the real Jesus comes to you and there he is. He's picking up your hand. He is he's holding your hand and he's bringing your hand and he's drawing it to his side and he's drawing it to his wrist. He wants you to know, to really know that he is in fact alive. The word we're glad, ekeresan, it's in the second heiress passive indicative of Cairo. It, it is, it, it is a, a, a situation where you're talking about there is a dramatic despair and depression that becomes full scale joy. Let me try and paint a picture for you. Imagine it's Christmas and your parents have pretty much said you're getting nothing. It's a downturn economy and don't expect anything. And there under the tree with stingray handlebars and a banana seat and a little sissy bar. Is the bike that you've dreamt of. I know you guys are. I, I'm way too old. And I know bikes are very different now. But hey, it's my my vision. You see that. Not only are you getting way more than you asked for. But the promises have come true. 
And remember when it says when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they saw the Lord. That word saw is Edo. You've seen it before in John chapter 20, verse eight. You'll remember when Peter goes into the tomb and you'll remember when John, the apostle, is standing outside of the tomb and he looks into the tomb and it says he saw he saw and believed. It's the same word. It means to look in such a way that you understand what it is that you're seeing. Same word. The reality begins to dawn on them. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, in Luke's account of this very same passage, we're, we're told that the disciples' first response is terror and fear. They're certain that they see a ghost or an apparition. And then Jesus confronts them about their terror and fear and doubt. And he invites them to touch him in chapter 24, verse 37 and 38. And in verse 39 of chapter 24, it says, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And in verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And in verse 41 of Luke chapter 24, but while they still didn't believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Are you any food here? Yeah, see, this is the Jesus I remember. When do we eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. That's because they didn't have any pico de gallo. I think after I come back to life, fish tacos sounds perfect. Is Jesus eating fish tacos just because he's jonesing for fish tacos in the worst way? No, he wants them to understand that this isn't a hallucination, that this isn't some shared um, visitation, that Jesus has really risen from the dead. He's not a ghost. He's not a disembodied spirit. He's not a hallucination. The real Jesus that really died with the body that he died in, he came back to life and he lifts their arms and hands and he places the startled, astonished disciples' hands into his open wounds and says, you can't digitally do this. You can't fake this. And they go from the lowest place of fear and terror and insecurity to the highest expression of joy and gladness. They go from confusion to conviction. And all the words that Jesus had spoken about going there, his arrest, his conviction, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. It's not an allegory. It's not a myth. It's not some esoteric communication from a mysterious peasant rabbi. It's true. And you know what? The terrified disciples in the beginning had spiritualized and allegorized his words. Something's happening. We don't know what's happening. Something's happening. We don't know what's happening. I'm going to tell you something. The times of terror and fear in my own life have almost always been because I failed to literally believe that what Jesus said was true. And I'm here to tell you that you can open up your Bible and you can read the promises and you can know that they're true over and over again. Jesus spoke about his death and his resurrection, and now he's kept his promise in John chapter 16, verse 22. It says, you now, therefore, have sorrow. But I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice. And your joy, no man can take from you. If you're an unbeliever, you can experience peace and joy. And if you are a believer, who took your peace? Who stole your joy?
The Bible makes it abundantly clear. That there is joy. And there is peace available. The skeptic, the atheist, the unbeliever might balk and say, you know, Jesus made it all too easy for the early disciples. Hey, you know what? If Jesus showed up at Calvary, South Denver, if he walked through those doors and he walked down that aisle in his flowing robe, in his resurrected body, and he invited me to place my hands into his open, gaping wound, then I would believe as well. In Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 14, in Mark's account of the same incident, Mark says, quote, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Your skepticism and unbelief doesn't. Turn Jesus on. There's an empty tomb. And there's a supernatural messenger. And the ladies have come and they have declared the story and they have been in the upper room terrified. Jesus may have begun his message with shalom. But he does rebuke them because they refuse to listen and believe the testimony of those who saw Jesus alive. And one day you will see Jesus face to face. And I've never been more aware of that. Than I have over the last few years. Over the last few years. I have the sense that everyone who comes in those doors and everyone who goes through those doors and everyone who sits down in these seats, each and every one of you, every one of you, without exception, no exceptions, each and every one of you will awaken one day and you will see Jesus face to face. And some of you will face him as Lord and Savior, and some of you will face him as judge. My job, my job in part is to make sure that you face him as Lord and Savior and not as judge. I guarantee, I guarantee, I guarantee that without exception, there is usually on any given Sunday someone who will get up out of the seat, they will exit out that door, they will go out into that world, and they will never come back. And I'm not talking about just coming back to church because, you know, you hated the worship, you hated the, the Bible teaching. It was too hot, it was too cold, the seats were too uncomfortable. Whatever the reason why, well, I'm not talking about leaving and never coming back to church. I'm, I'm talking about leaving and never coming back again to hear a message of peace and joy. You will stand in his presence. And in verse 21, look what else happens when Jesus shows up. So Jesus said to them again, peace, shalom. As the father has sent me, I also send you. There is peace and there is joy and peace and joy must precede the great purpose. You see, the truth is Jesus is going to send them on a message. The disciples will represent the living Lord to a watching world. The disciples are going to be commissioned by the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. But you can't have this commission unless you've experienced his peace. And you're walking in his joy. Unless a person's reconciled to God by the resurrected Jesus, unless a person is reconciled to God by the resurrected Jesus and has experienced peace and peace with God and the peace of God, how can how can you possibly represent Jesus to a watching world? And some of you. Some of you have taken notice. Some of you grew up in circumstances where you see people who are bitter and angry and agitated. Hi. Hi. 
Tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm a Christian. What are you so upset about? You know, I'm upset about everything. I'm upset about the world. I'm upset about the Democrats. I'm upset about the Republicans. I'm upset about this. I'm upset about the economy. I'm upset. You name it, I'm upset about it. So what do you do for fun? I go to church. I read my Bible. See, you're laughing because it just so doesn't make sense. The Father sent the Son. Look what Jesus says. As the Father has sent me. I also send you. It's okay for you to ask this question. In what way did the father send the son? Angry? Upset? Bitter? Do you think Jesus is going, I can't wait to drive the money changers out of the temple with the whip. Now, he will do that. But that's not the first thing that he does. The first thing that he does is he says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To open blind eyes. To unplug deaf ears. To give hope for people who are hopeless. Question, in what way did the father send the son? Did the father send the son on a mission? What do you suppose the answer is? Okay, just for a moment, let's pretend we're a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. Did the father send the son on a mission? Did the father send the son with a message? Did the father send the son with the necessary tools? Did the father send the son in love? Did the father send the son to an unfriendly and a hostile world? The disciples are going to need peace. And they're going to need joy. But make no mistake about it. It's Jesus who brings peace. It's Jesus who brings joy. And by the way. The purpose of the church can't be an artificial man-made message. If the Father sent the Son on a mission and with a message, did the Son change the Father's message? Did Did the Son change the Father's plan? Then how can we? How can we change the son's plan? How can we say anything other than what Jesus told us to say? People are separated from God. Their sin is horrible. But Jesus is a savior and he's willing to reconcile a lost world. Did Jesus come with a message that tickled the religious people's fancy? We're not here to promote man-made policies. We're here to tell about Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, there's power. Look what it says. Read it for yourself in verse 22 and 23. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus has commissioned his disciples and now Jesus is going to impart power to carry out the order. And then he is going to include what that order includes. Now, how are we to think about this and how are we to think about what Jesus has done? And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Do you think he's just blowing holy smoke? I don't think so. But I'm going to suggest something to you. That just like Jesus went to each and every one and he said, okay, it's okay. Touch me. It's okay. Reach out. Feel my hands. Feel my side. I'm going to suggest to you that he goes to each and every one of them and he breathes on them. 
I'm going to suggest to you that whatever is happening. Clearly, it's a prophetic sign, but I'm going to suggest to you that it's something more. Clearly, it's a symbol of the future coming of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's something more. You'll remember, you'll remember clearly we know that the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers the believer in a special way. And you'll remember, you'll remember in the beginning when God formed man, he took a huge amount of dirt a great big clump of dirt. And he breathed into the dirt. It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Clearly in Ezekiel's vision in the valley of the dead dry bones, the Lord speaks to the wind. It says in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9, it says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. The coming of the Holy Spirit and the breathing of the Lord Jesus, whatever else it does, dead things come back to life. And there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who come to church and they expect Jesus to show up and those who come to church and they don't expect anything at all. And in the hardness. And in the deadness. And in the darkness. You wonder if it's just going to be like every other Sunday. And you want Jesus to show up. And you want him to breathe life. I believe the passage is reminding us that the only way for the natural person, the unregenerate person to have life is through the life giving power of the Holy Spirit. And until we're born of the spirit, until until we have experienced the peace of God and the joy of God, once we've been commissioned by the Lord Jesus with a new direction and a new purpose, we have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know what? It doesn't really matter how much I pray and prepare. There's nothing that I can say and there's nothing that I can do to change your mind and to change your heart. The only person who can do that is the Holy Spirit. And all I can do is pray and say, Lord... Somehow I pray that the words that I speak don't hinder the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do. Well, does this mean they weren't saved or that they were unbelievers? Not necessarily. They were believers under an old and an incomplete economy. Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be with them and that the Holy Spirit would be in them. And Jesus told Nicodemus that you have to be born again. And Nick and Jesus told all of them that he would have to go. And unless he went, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. So is this some sort of substitute for the Pentecostal prelude that's about to take place? I don't think so. Clearly, Jesus has said that while he's in the world, he's the light of the world. And that the Holy Spirit would take his place. But make no mistake about it here. He is telling these disciples who are gathered in this upper room that in the same way that the father sent the son, he's going to send them. On a mission. With a message. So how are we to think about this? 
Clearly, the breathing is some kind of real communication of the spirit. It's not a substitute for the baptism of the spirit that takes place at at Pentecost. There's a communication of power and authority. We know, according to the New Testament, every believer receives the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, there is a powerful, there is a public, there is an immediate, there is a dynamic, there is a miraculous change that takes place. And by the way, it will take place. And then Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What in the world does this mean? Clearly, the Bible teaches in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, and in Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, that no man can forgive another man's sins. True or false? Can I make your sin go away? No. So what is he saying? Some have monstrously claimed that the disciples at this point have the power to absolve sinners of their sin or to condemn saints in spite of their relationship with God. Can you imagine anything more wicked or weird that your destiny was wrapped up in my wishes? Yeah, all of a sudden now, Pastor Appreciation Month becomes really, oh, here, Gino. Dude. I know you like Chick-fil-A. Here, have a coupon. You should thank God every single morning that your eternal destiny doesn't lie in my goodness or my graciousness or my how I feel about you or what I think about you. My feelings about you are irrelevant to the power and the presence of God and the ability of God to forgive you and to give you peace. It's the gospel that saves you. It's the sacrifice of Christ that saves you. So what does this passage both say and mean? Well, since only God can has the power to forgive sin, and since the Holy Spirit is God's representative on the earth, and since the Holy Spirit is the one who reproves of sin, what is the passage saying? Believers can proclaim that a person's sins are forgiven on the basis of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Our sins are forgiven when we receive Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. Here's what I think it says. We can proclaim that a person's sin is forgiven in Christ. And we can proclaim that a person's sin is not forgiven if they continue to reject Christ. Well, I want my sin to go away. Good luck with that. No, I I want it to go away apart from Jesus. Okay, let's. Let's do an experiment. Let's pretend that sin isn't real, like the Christian scientists do. Okay, on three. One, two, three. Now, if you were foolish enough to say sin's not real, did that make sin go away? You may say that sin isn't real, but it is. Okay, we'll try another one. Sin doesn't matter. Okay, on three. One, two, three. Does sin still matter? It must matter. How else do you explain the terror and the lack of peace and the lack of joy? So apparently sin is real and apparently sin matters and apparently sin can be forgiven. For those who come to Christ. Who can determine that a person is forgiven by Christ or not forgiven by Christ? Well, apparently it's the believer who's experienced peace with God and joy from God commissioned By Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, who knows the truth that it is Jesus who saves. 
And so now when I extend the invitation and I say. Jesus is willing to give you peace and Jesus is willing to give you joy and Jesus is willing to give you purpose and Jesus is willing to forgive you. On the basis of the message. By the way, when Jesus spoke for the father, was he speaking the words of the father? Do you remember what Jesus said over and over again? These aren't things that I've made up. The words that I speak, they're not my words. They're my father's words. Paul made it abundantly clear that the gospel wasn't something that he invented. But rather it was something that was imparted to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation for peace and the invitation for joy and the invitation for purpose isn't something that I've made up. And the invitation for power, it's something that he's willing to give you if you're willing to receive it. You know, I know that some of you came to church this morning thinking, I need to be in church. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad that you're here. You may have come here and you may not have even recognized that the need in your own heart was for peace. For joy. And for forgiveness. I'm begging you. Don't leave. Without peace. And don't leave. Without joy. And don't leave. Without forgiveness. It's available to you. In the person of Christ. But if you want forgiveness apart from Christ. It's not going to happen. I don't have the power to do that. And I don't think anyone does. Do you want to remain in guilt? And torture yourself? It's your choice. But my advice. Receive. The Holy Spirit. Experience. Grace. Experience power, experience forgiveness, experience joy. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I know that the Bible says where two or more are gathered, there you are in the midst. And they may not be able to see you and they may not be able to touch you. But Lord, for a brief moment, I pray that the blind would be able to see you and that the person scarred by sin whose central nervous system has been so worn down that they can feel the pressure, but they can't feel the pain anymore. Lord, I pray that just for a moment that they would feel the sensitivity of the heart, that they would know that their sin is real and that the Savior is real and that the Savior is willing to forgive them. Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Lord, I know that when my sin disappears, I can have friendship with you and peace with you and I can experience joy and the absence of guilt. And Lord, I need I need to be able to do something. Lord, my life needs to matter. And I want it to matter for Jesus sake. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand. Amen.